Don't know where I am half the time. In my body or my head, some strangers lying sprawled out in my bed, but the one thing I Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. This is episode number 60, which I'm semi-ironically titling The Most Dangerous Profession. It's an interview with someone who is sort of now I would call an old friend of mine, um, even though I met him in the 21st century. That's how old I am. His name is Bob Fenster, and he's a high school history teacher in Hillsborough, New Jersey. Just like me right now, he is confined to his home. Uh, This was an interview that I conducted with Bob back in November of 2019. So lots of things have changed in those four or five months. I asked Bob about what it's like to be a teacher who has political ideals and how sometimes we need to address them and how sometimes they're better left unaddressed. I'm Bob Fenster. I am a high school social studies teacher in Hillsborough, New Jersey, where I've been teaching for 27 years. How do you handle politics in the classroom? Let's just put it that way. Uh, we live in a period of time which I can say, in, understatedly, is a period of turmoil. Um, it's a period of divisiveness. Um, it's a period of serious lack of a productive discourse. In, if you teach a social studies class, politics, history, those two things are inextricable. They come up. Students want to talk about them. What is your strategy slash approach? No matter what, the there's never not a time to discuss uh, politics, certainly in my AP government class. that's It's actually government and politics. So it's, it's at the core of what the class is. But even in my uh, U.S. history class, politics is going to come up as issues are uh, constantly being compared to the present day. I think uh, I'm, I'm cognizant of bias, but I also believe that people who think that they are being completely fair to, quote, both sides, when of course there's more than two sides, uh, tend to do a lousy job of actually filtering their bias and are not really adequately representing what they believe. Now, I don't I don't go into a class thinking I'm going to present my agenda, but there are times where rather than censor myself, I may, I may share a particular point of view that I have, but I at the same time try to make sure that my students recognize there's no need for them to agree with me. Or in certain cases when issues of uh, race or, or uh, LGBTQ plus uh, issues come up, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I believe that there is validity to both sides. When these these things come up, because they've come up and read to it, I'm just thinking about moments in which I handled this, I would say, very poorly. And yeah, and other times when I think I've handled it better. And I think that in the earlier stages of my career, I definitely like to stand on a soapbox. Whereas as I've gotten older, I've mellowed a bit. And I've also realized that the, the effectiveness of that approach is not nearly as... Um, 
you know, it, it's not as effective as I, as I actually used to think, like berating someone about something doesn't actually get them to believe you. Right. So um, it does appear that you see there are times when you are um, perfectly within your rights where it's necessary to offer up your perspective on a political issue. How do you reconcile the idea that no matter how many times you say to the students and no matter what tone you offer it, you are still the authority figure, you are still the adult in the room, there are students in that room who are going to hang on every word that you say, no matter what, they are going to be cowed by the fact that you have years of experience, the degree, that wearing the tie, whatever it might be. You're the one who dictate to them the truth, in a sense. And even if you implore them that your word isn't gospel and that they can have their own opinions, how do you sort of navigate that space? Because um, for me, it's been it's been tenuous where I'll say, hey, listen, you don't have to agree with me, but I know as I look around the room and see faces that they want to because either they want me to like them, appreciate them, um, or you know they just feel like the authority figure is the authority figure and you and they've been taught or they agree with the idea that that person is the person to believe on a particular issue. So how do you reconcile that? While there's an element of truth to the fact that no matter what, there's a, the power discrepancy and people might be, a student might be inclined to, to give me more of um, a listen than some random person talking. I think that uh, a combination of factors of just the age of my students, which is high school and particularly uh, the AP government classes, uh, predominantly seniors, uh, but also the fact that I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but I, I, I have, it's an advanced placement class. So I have very bright students who are highly motivated, who also much of the time come in with their own political viewpoints. And they may have very opinionated parents who I am clashing with in terms of whatever I might say, or maybe I'm echoing it. And maybe they're rebelling against their parents, you know, and, and, and so there, there's, I, I'm not, I'm, I want to push back a little bit against, I don't really believe that I'm doing much in the way of, of, of brainwashing. Um, <laughs> I mean, you didn't use the word, but I mean, that's essentially, essentially the, the extension of that argument. Um, at the same time, the other thing that I think is really important to do is I, uh, I make it clear that the goal is not for them to agree with me or for me to change anybody's opinion. Uh, on most issues, again, I have certain issues where I think that there, there's there's right and wrong uh, that I'm that I'm more likely to be to try to be persuasive. But I'll talk about changing my perspective or being open to hearing other points of view and give them articles on that. Most recently, I, I did some I did some training um, in the uh, Harvard uh, case method. Been been working that into my classes. The students are. Uh, given a, a, a packet of materials about a particular topic that is usually not typical left, right, you know, liberal, conservative, historical in nature, and they don't know what they're supposed to believe, or, and I don't do any of my own uh, perspective in there. And so they don't, they don't naturally align themselves to, well, you know, let's say I'm a conservative, so on this issue I should, it, like, usually they're very difficult for them to, to, to do that on. And so it's a little bit of training in doing that rare thing of listening to other people and really weighing other people's opinions. If I was the only one who was talking in my class, or if I was the only source of information, then I would say there's a problem, but they're reading 
dozens of different, you know, articles from historical and current writing, seeing videos, and they're getting a million different perspectives. And so, sure, somebody who is enamored with me for some for for whatever reason uh, <laughs> might 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 get a little bit of an influence that way. But then I'll also the last thing I want to say about the the my very long winded answer here is that. I've always said, and I believe it to be true, that the students who readily agree with me, but do a lousy job of of explaining their point of view, are much more likely to get hammered on their grades than someone who disagrees with me, but does an effective job of making the argument. And I talk about that with my students. That you know, just just telling me what you think I want to hear is probably not mm. right. If it's just a, mm. a matter of I'm going to align with you politically. Do you find, have you found that there have been cases in which um, you feel a certain way about something and a student has come to a particular perspective on something that you fundamentally disagree with, but your pedagogical training says, like just what you've described is that it's, it's, it's up to them to, to reach their own conclusion and what you think doesn't really matter and whether they agree with you doesn't matter. But has there been like a tipping point or like something that pushed you where you were just like, I cannot abide that perspective in my classroom and I cannot, you're laughing. So I guess the answer is yes. Um, I cannot abide that perspective in my classroom. It's harmful uh, according to my moral code. Has there ever been, ever been a moment where you're like, listen, I firmly believe this and I'm not going to abide a perspective that is uh, antithetical to that. I mean, I, I typically that a, a significant difference is going to end in, okay, that's your opinion. And, and this is mine. Um, Although I shouldn't even have to say that, you know, if I, if I happen to share my opinion and a student d- disagrees, okay, cool, but that's fine. Where, where it breaks down are, are certain topics. You know, I, I, I had, uh, I mean, the, the one that's most difficult, uh, historically that's been the most difficult has been, has been issues of race. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a student, uh, when I asked the question about uh, the end of slavery and what do what does the government or what is owed to the the freed men and women? And last year, a student said nothing, and I just I I, I was just so stunned by the by this response that I I I didn't I had nothing you know I, I <laughs> didn't have I like I mean I think and most of the students in the class felt the same way and ultimately what you know what what can you do I mean there are people who hold perspectives that are utterly nonsensical and um you know you can't you can't change them i do seek to work around the periphery and and get my students whoever they are to ask themselves questions and to try to you know to challenge their own perspectives and precepts and sometimes a lot of the time i'm sure it has little to no impact but i've also had students significantly change their their points of view on on issues that they seem very entrenched on and uh it doesn't matter where they ended up it's that they actually were willing to look at it so uh, that sounds like a sober (laughs) professional approach um (laughs) well i am being recorded (laughs) well right um but I, i i will admit to you and you know the eight people who are listening to this that there have definitely been times in my career teaching specific issues topics that are um of particular uh import to me and that are very personal oh that i've, got, I I've got one i've got one I, let me let me let me give you the the worst yeah, moment of my career is, <laughs> so we've been talking about this sort of abstractly but let's get into details like i want to know the nitty-gritty like yeah give me give me the one uh okay 
So we were watching a movie on the Holocaust, and a student was snickering and making jokes. And I lost it. And I told him, I, I, I physically threatened him. Wow. Uh, this is uh, 23 years ago or something akin to that. So, so we're young and scrapping and you would you would have big, huge, bulging muscles. And so we, <laughs> that was never me. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> it just was a matter of, uh, you know, uh, you know, something, I wanted to say something shocking uh, to, to get him to never do it again and to have other students receive the message that that was utterly unacceptable. And, uh, it was, it was awful. As soon as I said it, as soon as the words left my mouth, I, I was horrified. I mean, mm -hmm. horrified both because I did it and also for self-preservation. And right. I, I pulled the student out in the hall and I apologized for, for the words that, you know, that I used and, but, you know, and then also said, but what in the world were you thinking that the word got back to the principal eventually. And I got, uh, I got a nice talking to about that, but fortunately, mm -hmm. uh, he was, uh, wise enough and it was long enough ago that <laughs> that uh, that sort of thing was was dealt with i think the appropriate way which was you understand what you did was wrong you apologize you you, you did what you have to do let's never hear this again you know, uh, this kind of behavior again and it, and it never, right. never did i have been known not to physically threaten anyone i haven't <laughs> that one i can't say i've done although i've definitely thought about it yeah but there have been moments where I have taken the intellectual high ground, let's say, and I've made it very clear to the student that what they were saying was absolute nonsense. Like that I know is the same kind of thing as threatening someone physically in that you are bullying them because I was personally offended by what they were doing. Something like that is so offensive and so egregious that you did it not because you were personally offended only, although you were, but also because you couldn't let that sit in the classroom without some kind of reprimand. Right. And now you took an interesting path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, it, it, this brings me back even further because uh, recently I got in touch with a, a former student of mine who's African-American and I didn't, I haven't taught that many racial minorities in my AP, unfortunately in my AP and honors classes. And she told me an anecdote about a time, and this is again, like maybe three years into my teaching career, uh, where a student said something somewhat racist or, or white privilege oriented. And her, her, remember, her memory of my reaction was to kind of just ignore him and move on. When I found out about that, it, it really haunted me uh, about, you know, that, that, that I would be, you know, so... Um, you know, afraid of responding and then leaving her to, to be like, okay, nobody's got my back here. You, I think you hit exactly upon it. It's that it's not about, it, it may not be about the student who you're engaged in some kind of dialogue with that isn't getting it or that is saying something terrible. It's about making sure that the other students who are listening to this have enough information that they can make up their own minds based on facts and logic so that they don't walk away thinking, yeah, that, that kid made a really good point about the, you know, about the moon landing not actually happening or, you know, <laughs> I, mean, the, I, I don't need to change an individual's mind, but I do worry about the people who are listening. Do schools have the responsibility to take a stand on a particular issue or should they remain neutral? You've got your, again, private versus public and charter um, that, that might play a particular role here. Um, I mean, there were schools that, that, you know, where administrations and teachers walked out with students, both for Parkland and for, uh, 
for climate change. And that's pretty cool. Uh, and that's, that's obviously their decision, but I really don't have a problem with someone saying, no, we're not going to do that because this could happen for a million different issues. And, um, I mean, the ones that I have problems with are the ones where they were punitive, where they were horribly punitive and threatened mm-hmm. students. I mean, that's just, that's, that's asinine. If they mm-hmm. want to give kids a, you know, I mean, even if it's a, like a, a minor slap on the wrist, fine. You know, my daughter, my, my 16 year old daughter was just arrested, uh, a, a month and a half ago for protesting against ice. And, uh, and you know, we went to court and, <laughs> and everything and she understood the process. She understood that's what, you know, civil disobedience comes with a price. You don't just get to do it for free. So right. if okay. kids want to want to walk out and they know what the consequences are and, but they're not draconian, that's fine too. How much of the internal infrastructure, the infrastructure of a school, um, mirrors, reflects, is sympathetic to the sort of carceral state um, and kind of also upholds some of the systemic racism that our country is notorious for. How much of that gets kind of played out in schools and what role, I mean, if you think, and he does, what role do you think the teachers have in promoting social justice, in promoting um, the voices of students, or should they just sit back and, and, you know, just do their job? I mean, certainly there's, you know, there's lots of institutional racism. There is certainly individualized racism. Soft bigotry of low expectations, that sort of thing. Right. That certainly right. exists. And, and actually getting almost full circle, the uh, African-American student that I uh, spoke about at the beginning or way, way back there, uh, she's, <laughs> she's in it. She's a, uh, she, she teaches uh, college education. Um, I mean, she, she prepares educators and we had a nice conversation about this very topic about, you know, what, what more can I do? Like I wanted to right. know from her, okay, what did I, I know what I did wrong? What should right. I have done? That was the first part right. of it. But then, right. you know, and a big part of it was doing more to encourage uh, those voices and to to maybe call on uh, on minority students uh, more than 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 you would normally. Uh, not not to say, of course, not in a clumsy. Let's get the black perspective, or let's well, get right, a, let's right. hear from a Hispanic, you know. But right, right, giving them those opportunities that. Uh, you know, because our because they've been told to be quiet for so long, it, it, even even if it's just like by cultural behavior, that right. their that their opinions aren't valued. So, what would you say to those who say that that's quote unquote reverse racism? <laughs> oh, Bob, you're just now dis- disenfranchising the white kids. Um, and I, I'll give you sort of a parallel example of this: Facebook is a cesspool, etc., and so on. Um, <laughs> You, I, I assume you sort of feel the same, although we have uh, exchanged lots of ideas over Facebook that have been amusing and or edifying. Um, but recently, uh, an old college friend of mine posted, he's, he lives in New Orleans, and he posted um, that he saw a Black Votes Matter sign as he was going to vote. And he was uplifted by that. And he thought, that's really great. Um, we should have more of that. And one of his friends wrote, wait, that's not racist because it's Black? Mm. Um, what if you saw a sign that said white votes matter? Um, you wouldn't say that would be okay. Uh, so how is that, you know, equal? And then there are like 25 different replies from people who are like trying to educate this guy about systemic racism and voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression and all the things that you'd expect, but you're still going to get that. 
Sure. So what's your response to that? Well, I, I usually can't help myself, and I, I take umbrage over the notion of reverse racism, which is just a stupid phrase. You know, what, yes. racism, Why is is, it... racism is racism, period. But then there's okay. then there's the you know the and I and, and forgive me for like my perhaps my tone is 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 a particular way because I've had this conversation eight hundred times. Uh, oh, okay. It, it, and that's not I mean that that doesn't mean that it, it's reminds me of how Michael Dukakis answered the death penalty question that he. He said years later, he goes, I answered it like it was the 800th time instead of recognizing that I have an audience that might actually want to hear what I have to say. Right, exactly. Um, but I mean, there's the there's the argument about, you know, that, that a, a particular uh, racism is much more harmful when it's coupled with power, you know, or prejudice plus power is, is, you know, people who are who are not empowered having racist views doesn't really affect anybody significantly it's when people who are in, in authority and, and have the ability to to do something about their racism or to have right. there's have no mechanism impact. behind it right. that can back up the 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 prejudice the prejudice right so the the whole notion of why can't we all just be colorblind and teacher maybe teachers shouldn't do any of this this sort of thing and there should be no affirmative action it's highly convenient for those who are already advantaged in society like, like the student I mentioned who didn't want to do anything about the people who were freed from slavery. Like, okay, from this moment on, 1865 or 1863, depending on well, nobody was really free. Few people were actually freed in 1863, but let's go with 1865. Right. In 1865, all of the enslaved people are now free. So it's, and we're going to be, we're going to be fair to everybody from this point on. They're never going to catch up. So that's why you can't, you know, the, the system with institutionalized racism with, with huge amounts of privilege, uh, you know, I, I I grew up in in suburban New, New Jersey. My parents uh, paid for my college. I never saw a bill uh, as an as an undergraduate. And my first semester, the daily newspaper talked about tuition hikes, and I couldn't care less uh, because it it didn't matter to me. And then when I met people who had actually mattered to, who had to drop out when they raised tuition. That started to, you know, started to mean something to me because I had lived such a sheltered existence. So now I'm going to ask an even more annoying question. <laughs> um, you just described yourself as someone who grew up with privilege. Um, it's fair to say that you are that you would you identify as a person, not a person of color, right? You're Correct. you're a white guy, <laughs> yeah. Just for the because you know it's it's radio. Uh, so how about those voices that would say to you, "Who are you to take up this cause? You don't." you haven't lived it. So you can't really tell a person of color what it's like um, to, to live an oppressed life. You can't really um, advocate for that perspective because you don't understand it yourself. The most important thing that people, that white people can do, uh, particularly not uh, forgetting the classroom for the moment, but is to talk with other white people about these sorts of issues, uh, to try to bring, uh, uh, to enlighten people who are, who are stuck in that mindset of, well, why, why don't we just treat everybody equal? Well, because mm -hmm. even if you treat everybody equal, there's other people who aren't doing that. And so no matter, no matter what, even if people, I mean, I see it too. And, and I have, I have a uh, high school acquaintance on Facebook who, who lit into me about this issue uh, where she insisted that, you know, that this is the problem that I, you know, that I'm the problem that I'm perpetuating racism by, by this kind of attitude 
and that she, of course, doesn't have it. And she literally used the, the phrase, I don't have a racist bone in my body, which I just is the, the best tip off of all. Whenever you, <laughs> <laughs> the answer is, I mean, I'm not speaking, I'm not speaking for the, the, the students of color. I'm trying to get the students of color to, to be, to, to be empowered to speak for themselves. And there are times, you know, I have a, you know, I, I have a very active uh, African-American member of my debate team who uh, is way more conservative than, than I would have imagined, um, or, you know, than, than judging the book by its, you know, by its cover sort of situation on issues like, like affirmative action. And, uh, huh. and, and that's, and, and that's fine. You know, like I, I want, I want to, I, I want her to be able to engage in, in those issues and, you know, and explore. I mean, she, she also said she wasn't entirely sure. I'm like, great. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's give you some things to read <laughs> that maybe, right. maybe, you'll, you know, give you some, some, some insight and, Wherever she ends up is fine. So um, what do you give students to read? How do you choose? Because, again, you are choosing these. Um, you said earlier on in this conversation that you try to, I think you alluded to the fact that you try to choose things from very different perspectives. Um, but how do you choose what to give students? So I'll give you, I think we probably have the same sort of MO um, in that we, I do a lot of project-based stuff, um, and I get the sense that you do too. Yes. Um, and so one of the projects that I uh, did with 10th graders in a U.S. history class last year was um, I said, okay, I put a question out there and I said, how do you think we're doing with the immigration issue in this country? And all 17 kids in the room were like, not so great. So I said, yeah, it seems like that, right? We seem to have some problems with this. So it's good that you all agree on that. You're going to break into groups of six, three groups of six. You are going to investigate the history of immigration in the United States from the very beginning, going back to even before the constitution was drafted, how these things were handled. And you are going to come up with better legislation than Congress has been able to cough up in the last 50 years. Go. And they spent six and a half weeks doing this. I still chose for them some articles for them to read, um, to augment some of the things that they, some of the sort of the pathways that went, they went down themselves. Um, because of course, I still think that as the instructor, I should have some say in what they read, that it can't be entirely autonomous. Um, so how do you choose what you give your students to read when you are being quote unquote unbiased, or at least trying to give them as much of the spectrum as possible? When I had more leeway in terms of curriculum, um, when there was less standardized testing and we weren't focused so focused on also the AP exam, I uh, yeah, I was giving tons of supplemental readings to my to my students. Um, but frankly, both both what I just alluded to and also the fact that we are expecting so much less of our students. We in my school we have uh, uh, it's been about three years now that we are not allowed to give graded homework. Um, so if we give homework that you know, like you're going to read this essay uh, and then we're going to talk about it tomorrow, no one reads it, and <laughs> so it it it, it has really uh, curtailed that significantly. But um, more, I mean, I will do a combination of things. I mean, I will, I, I will try to find different perspectives on, on particular issues. Sometimes it's as simple as a, a liberal and a conservative um, uh, on a given issue. Um, other times uh, I'll, I'll try to give them something more, um, 
less opinionated, more, more fact-based, but then actually force them to, to take positions. And that's one of my, one of my favorite things is, uh, is to give them a question, which, uh, is totally one-sided, you know, why, why is this the stupidest idea you've ever heard? And it's a, a liberal, but it's a liberal idea and they have to argue from the conservatives point of view or, or the opposite. And, right. and, and I'll always, students will always be, do I have to answer it this way? I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I want you to understand the, a different perspective. It may not be the one you agree with, but make the argument for, for another perspective. We met each other in 2011, as I recall. Um, we were at a conference in Philadelphia yeah. about the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so even then we talked about this, but you, you know, you strike me as someone who has, a, as you've already already stated pretty baldly, a particular perspective on, on politics. We have talked um, negatively about the current president of the United States. We just alluded to the you fact did. that- You did. I love like, the guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just in case anyone else is listening. No, I'm kidding. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, I, I've said before that I doubt that they, anybody who's a pro-Trump person would ever be listening to anything that I ever said. How did you get that way? I mean, were your parents people who were socially justice-oriented? Were you- um, did you grow up with certain kinds of um, ideology in your house, whether people that your parents read or, or, or was this like a pendulum swinging the other way kind of thing? Like, how did you wind up being uh, as sort of open minded and clear eyed and sober about like the horribleness of everything and, and wanting to be honest about it with students as I get the sense that you are? How did you how do you get there? Three part answer. Uh, OK, <laughs> the the uh, first would be kind of traditional liberal Jewish household, not anti, not at all anti-intellectual, but you know, my father wasn't, wasn't, you know, parents were not, were not reading uh, uh, philosophers or uh, commentary magazine or <laughs> probably not the best <laughs> example. You know, they didn't subscribe <laughs> to political magazines or anything like that, but we watched the news and they would comment and, and to me was all common sense. Um, the second one, which is, which is going to, you're going to take it as a, a, as a funny comment, but it's a hundred percent sincere, uh, watching a million episodes of mash Alan Alda and his perspective, you know, cause obviously he was the, the main became the main voice of that show. Uh, ever, just so much, so much of what I believed about authority, about, the, about military and foreign policy and just about being good to other people. I, I, I would say, almost more than my parents uh, that show was made that much of an impression on me. I would watch since, since I was little and it was on, you know, it, today you could binge watch it all day long, I suppose. But back then it, I mean, it was, it was on like four times a day and, yeah. and I, you know, on, on in syndication and I'd watch it on channel five and then I'd switch over to channel 11 where it was on late, you know, at 11 o'clock or you know, whatever. Um, and then the third thing was uh, like, so I grew up, I grew up as a, as a, fairly mainstream liberal, uh, you know, I, I would have been happy to vote for Joe Biden in 1988. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, then in college, uh, shockingly, it was college that radicalized me when I, I, oh my I, I alluded to it with the, with the, with the tuition, uh, at the, right. at the end right. of, at the end of my, um, first semester, I took my last exam and I, I aced it and I was walking up the street planning to go to the newspaper office which is the other end of college avenue i went to rutgers and um never got there my father went to rutgers so i (laughs) never never got there because there were hundreds of people at uh 
uh, around Bishop House, and I, was, I found two of my newspaper buddies and said, uh, what's going on? And they said, there's a big uh, protest at the Board of Governors. And uh, they started dragging people out of the building and throwing them in the, you know, in a, in a bus. And, uh, and then other students ran forward and they laid down in front of the bus and and they started dragging those people and throwing them into other vehicles. And then I said, hey, that guy looks like Dennis, who was one of my two friends. And I turned to see that Dennis was no longer there because Dennis had thrown himself in front of the bus. And <laughs> Dennis was graduating and I couldn't, I, I just boggled my mind. Why would you take that chance of, you know, what's the outcome going to be? You're going into the job market and you're going to have an arrest on your record and the tuition hike doesn't affect you in any way. And that's when mm. I started paying attention and mm. recognizing again, um, I, the, you know, I had, there, there was a, a student who, uh, he didn't, he didn't drop out of school, but what he did was he dropped out of housing and he lived in his car for the, for, for a couple of semesters, uh, because he couldn't afford, you know, it was that much of, you know, the 14% tuition hike or whatever it was. And when I tell my current students about this, and I do talk about it in my government class, when I, I talk about um, uh, forms of participation, political participation, because this culminates in building takeovers. Um, we, we, we were on the front page of the New York Times and uh, after, after taking over a building for 10 days. Um, and, and I talk to them about, uh, about this whole thing. And, you know, they're, of course, they're, they're shocked by it. It just seems, mm. it seems so, so far. And, but I, mm -hmm. I understood finally that, uh, oh, oh, what, what I was going to say is I, I don't tell them what the tuition actually was, because if I gave them a number, they'd want to punch me in the face for, <laughs> for <Right>. protesting <laughs> over Rutgers tuition over in 1989. That? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're like, that's, that's what we pay per credit, you know, right. but, <laughs> but that experience, you know, fundamentally changed me and, you know, got me to stop being so horribly uh, use modern, the modern language. So centered on my own experience and start to recognize that, you know, I was, I was again, a, a good traditional liberal, but then I became, then I started to recognize that the, that person was somebody who I learned to hate <laughs> at my, when I, when I was much, became much more radicalized and I've, I've mellowed on that now, you know, that now right. I understand that perspective and I try to convince those people of, of the rightness of, or the correctness of uh, particular ideas, but very long oh. answer. But that there you go. No, no, it's good. Uh, it, it sparks two things in me, and and then we'll see where this this goes. One is I just I have I have to tell you this. This may devastate you, or it may uh, <laughs> not devastate you, but it may it may rankle. Um, since you uh, espouse this, uh, you know, this affinity for Mash, um, I taught a class on um, the Vietnam War last year, and I had a student who was interested in the way in which spe specifically Vietnamese, but Asian people in general were depicted in American pop culture in the 1970s. Um, because, you know, that show was, yeah, it was about Korea, but it was really about Vietnam. Right. And um, what this very astute girl decided to do was take the first eight minutes or so of the first episode of MASH ever and critique it in terms of basically like, you know, stereotypes. stereotypes. Yeah. And what she found was that it was rife with really, I mean, you know, uh, just not on the edge of, but over the edge of really sort of the, the docile, um, subservient, obsequious Asian servant giving them drinks mm -hmm. um, and how there were no 
um, you know, Koreans, I guess. There are no Koreans in the actual show with any lines. Uh, and, and she tore it to pieces. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was sitting there thinking like, wow, I get we, we've reached the point where like mash now is is like, you know, you want to say, OK, boomer to mash. <laughs> and, and and it's like, OK, like I, I, I was with that, you know, I was like, OK. And she also took 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 apart uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, Mickey Rooney's oh, performance. Well, that's easy, <laughs> which is easy. But she put those two things together and, uh, you know, and, and made this like scathing critique of how, you know, and her basically her thesis was this is a war that was sold to the American people easily because we saw Asians as inferior and barbaric. And, and I'm like, I can't argue with that. Um, so I just, I felt the need <laughs> to share that with you regarding mash. Sure. Um, and some of those moments where students kind of like really shock you with um, in a good way uh, with how in depth and how passionate they can become about a particular subject and how they can really dig deep and how, when they are moved by something, um, you know, they're mostly the students I find are apathetic about things. And then suddenly somewhere, somehow something catches them and they're like, wait a second, that sucks. And because they're 16 or 17 and think that they can still change the world, you and I know better. Um, they, they like, are like, okay, I'm going to throw myself into this and like, and make it known. And I appreciated that on this, on the part of this, of this student now, regarding being radicalized. Um, I wish I could say that my college experience radicalized me the way yours did. I wish I could say that I had any inkling of what was going on in the world or beyond my nose um, before the age of 35. But that is that would be a lie. Um, and I grew up, I think, the same way as you did, uh, just in a different sort of suburban pocket of New York City. Uh, I grew up liberal Jewish in Westchester County. So other side of you know the river but like same deal i think yeah. um you know parents read the new york times listen to npr all that and um that kind of liberalism is a liberalism that i also came to hate um and it wasn't tuition hikes that uh that really opened my eyes it actually was strangely enough israel palestine uh. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, we can go into that for a while too. <laughs> we, 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 we shouldn't, uh, and we, we won't, but like, you know, you can guess the message that I received growing up in a New Rochelle, going to um, like an Orthodox day school through eighth grade, going to a Jewish summer camp, going to a conservative with a big C synagogue. I mean, um, a very, very, very pro-Israel bent to the point where no other narratives were even accepted. You couldn't even, you couldn't even find one in any of the curriculum anywhere about okay. Israel. Um, and so it took me a long time to begin to move out of that and recognize that there was another narrative. And of course, once I came across the other narrative, I was like appalled. And I began to like say, what else have I been swallowing whole um, that may be, uh, you know, somebody's agenda or not exactly true or, you know, certainly couched in such a way as to make me think a certain way. Um, and that touched off like, you know, basically the last nine years of my life <laughs> where it's just been like, oh, I'm going to bur burn down that wall. I'm going to burn <laughs> down that house. I'm going to break down that bridge um, to the point where like, you know, I have basically said to my father, who is 79, um, you have been dead wrong about this your whole life. <laughs> and And we have had, he's, you know, we've had some really productive conversations about it. And I think that like he's... Um, he has actually changed his mind about things and he he's interesting an interesting case just to circle all the way back again um, in that he is a veteran of the Vietnam War 
uh, and um, not that he saw any combat or anything. He was uh, a dentist, but um, <laughs> he did he did live through Tet, and okay. he did you know see some horrible things, and that experience radicalized him. But he kind of like pushed back against it um, because it was too alienating. Um, it made him uh, too much of an outsider in his own community. And so while he was suddenly seeing the United States government as this, you know, imperialist tiger shredding up the world and therefore like the entire concept of the American dream and, you know, American exceptionalism became anathema to him. He realized there was nobody that he could talk to about it. And so he just pretended <laughs> that he didn't believe those things. Um, and now what let, that led to like a lot of repression of stuff. And he was like a very angry guy in his 30s and 40s. Um, I have a podcast all about that, which you could listen to. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So anyway, like I, I just I felt uh, inclined to kind of like um, parallel your situation in terms of like what your three answers to my question, how do you get the way you are? Because, um, you know, my path is different, but it's somewhat the same. Sure. And I, I find myself now strangely actually kind of like even beginning to question some of the left turn left turns that I've made and some of the assumptions that I've made and some of the kind of sweeping generalizations that I've been, you know, I just listen to this person and I agree with them, or I just read this particular article right. and I, and, and I, you know, it's only in the last couple of weeks to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you only in the last couple of weeks that I have begun to think, well, maybe that was too easy. And maybe I, you know, I just decided to jump on a different bandwagon, which has the same baggage and the same agenda and the same sort of whitewashing kind of uh, perspective, which is like only look at a thing one way. So that's just been a very interesting, very, very new development, which is extremely uncomfortable, but I am beginning to try to come to terms with things that are uncomfortable and sit with them instead of running away. Well, and it, it, it's it's a common. I I I don't I don't want to speak for you, but I I almost feel like uh, that sort of feeling that you have. It's it on the one hand, it's really good. It 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 connects to what I was talking about before about trying to get my students to question their own precepts and not just agree with you know, well, I'm a, I'm a socialist. So therefore I must think this, or, you know, the, right. the, the, you know, Rachel Maddow, I respect everything she says. So therefore when she says this, you know, Oh, okay. I didn't know. I don't know anything about that topic, but I guess I'll just agree with Rachel her. Maddow, yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's easy. It's too easy. <laughs> yeah. We're in such an amorphous with the amorphous phase of the media and of yes. people's ability to believe conspiracy theories and of, of, mainstream media reporting things without actually properly vetting it and and, right. and, and who right. knows what what the truth is okay. right and one other thing just for fun uh yes my mom was born in israel uh okay. so i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> times a hundred uh i've had i've had to tell her i've had to basically give her cease and desist letters uh when it comes to email stop oh, sending me these emails about israel we're never going to agree Oh boy, and, and and it got ugly for a couple of years. And uh, Passover seders are probably no fun. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Fortunately, that's something that that we we stopped doing a long time ago. Oh, good. And, and those are the worst. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Getting political at those. Oh, good. Ugh, just God. like today with the Palestinian. <laughs> no, no. One, two, one, two, three, four.
Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. I hope you're safe and healthy wherever you are holed up. I suppose these days, we who produce content have captive audiences, so I'm glad that you decided to share the last 50 minutes or so with me and my friend Bob. Bob's on Facebook, just like What We Will Abide, and I'm going to link to his Facebook page because nightly, for the last several nights, Bob has been doing concerts. Bob's a musician. You heard one of his songs here, and you can hear Bob live on his Facebook page singing his own original tunes as well as some covers. I wish Bob and you the absolute best. <laughs>